Anybody have a, anybody have a dog you can do this with? <laughs> a couple. Have you seen this? Have you seen somebody train their dog where you can put the tastiest treat on the snout of that dog and he'll just balance it there until his master says, okay, now you can eat. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, they'll have like that milk bone on their snout and they're just shaking because everything in them wants to eat that thing, but they know it's better if they obey the master. Sometimes I think we live like that's our model for Christianity. Sometimes I think most Christians live like that dog balancing something on their nose. Where I've, I've come to understand what Jesus did for me at the cross. He died under the punishment my sins deserved. I believe that. I'm, I'm saved. I'm redeemed. But I still live my life just looking down my snout at things I shouldn't really have. And oh man, I'm just, just until I can either hold out or until I can convince myself that my master says it's okay that I have that thing or I do that thing or, or until I just can't hold out any longer. And I gobble up the thing I've had my eyes on. And then I put my tail between my legs knowing I failed and brace myself for my master to, to hit me with the rolled up newspaper and tell me I've been a bad boy. Anybody live the Christian life like that? Maybe I'm better for a little while until here comes that treat balanced on my nose again. That's a terrible way to live life. And that's not at all what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Today in the Gospel of Matthew, we see where we pick up the, the Last Supper's over. Jesus led his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they are in Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, that's the place where Jesus went and he threw himself, or first he asked his friends, this. He said, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Will you guys stay awake? Will you guys pray for me? Pray with me? Will you walk with me through this time of trial? Jesus asked three of his friends to do that. How'd they do? Not great. They fell asleep. And when Jesus found them sleeping, he came back and Saw them sleeping and he said, so you couldn't stay awake with me for one hour. That was about Jesus. I, I really could have used you guys. But then Jesus stopped talking about him. And he started talking about his friends and he said this, stay awake and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. What did Jesus mean by that? That is really what we want to talk about this morning. 
Because even though this showed up in last week's sermon, it's really what this week's passage is about. Here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see a bunch of people act toward Jesus completely in their flesh. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to failure every time. Some of them can't help it. They don't have a willing spirit. One of them will. See, disciples of Jesus Christ, this is true about all of us. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you have inside of you a willing spirit. When you came to understand what Jesus did for you at the gospel and trust that he would save you because of your faith and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you were indwelt with the most powerful force in the universe, the Holy Spirit of God. You were indwelt with the God of the universe. He took up residence inside you. That's a powerful, powerful thing. And the Holy Spirit, he wants nothing. He always wants the same thing. You know what the Holy Spirit wants? He wants to glorify Jesus Christ. And that's why you and I were created, to glorify Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us to glorify Jesus. And he wants to fill us with what Jesus promised to give his disciples peace and joy that are not based on what's happening around us, our circumstances. The Holy Spirit gives us peace and joy when we fulfill our purpose of glorifying Christ, regardless of our circumstances. We have a spirit willing to do that. But man, oh man, is our flesh weak. What we're going to see today is, especially when we look at Peter's part of this passage, we're going to see that it's impossible to glorify Christ in our flesh. We can try as hard as we want. We can hold out as hard as we want. We can, be, we can try as hard as we can to be obedient in our flesh. But our flesh cannot glorify our Savior. When we live in our flesh, we're always simply between failures. We're going to see vivid examples of that today. I want to define something for you before we go on, though. What is Jesus talking about when he mentions the flesh? This word flesh, usually sarks in Greek in the New Testament, it's used a couple of different ways in the New Testament. One way the word flesh is used is just like our, like our flesh and bones, right? Like Jesus became flesh, which just means he had a, a body like yours and like mine. There's another way the word flesh is used in the scriptures, and I think this is the sense today, and that is because we are human and because this is a fallen world and we have come under the fall, that our, our, uh, our bodies and our emotions and our wills 
have been tainted by the fall of mankind. We have a sinful flesh. Our flesh, our, our beings, we, when left to our own devices, we always gravitate toward self-preservation, self-protection, self-advancement, self-centeredness. That is the natural bent of our flesh. And for the Christian, the reason that can be a problem is because to glorify Jesus, sometimes we have to do things that are counterintuitive to our flesh. Let's read our passage today, and then we'll see some examples of how people deal with Jesus in their flesh. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. We're in the garden, or the, the orchard, really, of Gethsemane. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd or a, a huge multitude with swords and clubs. They came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the one who was betraying Jesus gave the crowd a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to Judas, friend, do what you have come for. Then the mob came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me then. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all the disciples left him and fled. Example of somebody who lives by the Spirit. And that, as always, is Jesus. You know what, Seth, don't worry about it too much if you can't find it. It's basically just the, today's scripture on the, on the screen. So if they find it, they find it, but don't, don't worry too much about it. Okay, Jesus is our example of living by the Spirit. Again, Jesus didn't have a sinful flesh, but Jesus was still human. And Jesus was, he was staring down the barrel of a worse trial, something worse than you or I could ever possibly face. Isn't that true? If you weren't here last week, listen to last week's sermon. I'm not going to rehash it, but what was facing Jesus at the cross was incomprehensibly awful. And the physical part of that was the smallest portion. Jesus, in his flesh, did not want to go to the cross. He wanted there to be another way. But in Gethsemane, Jesus set his will and set his jaw toward obedience to the Lord, to the Father. And so by the time we open today, Jesus is set. He is fixed on what will glorify the Father even 
if it doesn't give him in his flesh what his flesh desires. That's why we read in verse 47 that this uh, large crowd comes to arrest Jesus and it's successful. A huge multitude. Why do you suppose Judas brought so many people to arrest Jesus? We know from the Gospel of John there were soldiers in this crowd, though Matthew doesn't tell us. Why do you suppose they brought so many people to arrest Jesus? Had Jesus demonstrated a considerable amount of power? Absolutely. So they think, we better take a lot of people if we're going to arrest this guy. This may not be easy. Was Jesus arrested because he was overpowered? No. Jesus was arrested because he was ready to be arrested. It wouldn't have mattered if Judas showed up with a million soldiers armed with a million machine guns. If Jesus wasn't ready to be arrested, Jesus wasn't getting arrested. But because Jesus was ready to be arrested, he knew that's what would glorify the Father. Judas could have shown up with a kindergartner wielding a pair of handcuffs, and that would have been enough to arrest Jesus. Because he is confident that the leading of the Spirit is leading him to the cross. And that's where he's going. But he's the only example of someone living led by the Spirit in this story. The first man other than Jesus we meet in today's passage in verses 47 through 50 is Judas Iscariot. Judas um, he's the example of someone who's all flesh and no willing spirit. Judas was not a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus called him a devil elsewhere. I mentioned this several weeks ago, but Judas is the example of someone who, who simply lives according to what his flesh desires and tried Jesus on for size toward those ends. This is extremely common. People want some things they want. And sometimes we're willing to try religious things, thinking those religious things will help me get what I want. That's Judas. Judas always wanted position, power, wealth. And he saw this guy, Jesus, that certainly had power. And so he tried some Jesus. Maybe Jesus will help me get what I've always wanted. That's Judas. And as soon as Judas came to the realization, following Jesus is not going to help me get what I want, he cashed in his chips and decided, I think betraying Jesus will come closer to getting me what I want. And that's what he's done. Where we, show, where we start today, Judas has the silver on his person. He sold Jesus out. Because if following Jesus won't make me rich, maybe betraying him will. That's Judas. He's all flesh and no willing spirit. He's got a prearranged signal with the mob. He's going to kiss Jesus. Why, did, why would that have needed to happen? No matter what Renaissance paintings you've looked at, might say Jesus didn't glow he didn't have a halo. He looked like a first century Jewish dude. 
and it was dark out there. And Judas and the Sanhedrin, they didn't want to take the chance that maybe Judas would greet one of the other disciples. Maybe he says hi to Bartholomew. Maybe he shakes hands with John. And maybe the crowd gets all fired up and arrests the wrong guy. They don't want to take any chances. So Judas says, tell you what, I'm only going to kiss one of them. And he does. And Jesus says to him, friend. By the way, that's a Greek word that means friend, but not quite friend. (laughs) I don't know how better to translate it, but it's like associate. Like, do you have people you work with? They're kind of your work friends, but not really your friend friends. That's sort of what he says. Friend, but not quite friend. That kiss does not uh, fool me. Do what you have to do. Again, Jesus is not arrested because he's, he's tricked or overpowered, but because he's ready. They come and take hold of Judas and arrest him. So there's Judas. He's somebody that's just living by whatever will satisfy the needs and desires of his flesh the best. Thank you for finding that, but we're back to the beginning here. So we're going to go through this. We went there. Remember that? Hey, wasn't that great? Boy, I was really preaching then. That was a good part. Okay. Next person we meet. Matthew doesn't tell us who this is. But in verses 51 through 54, we see Peter, who is stuck in his flesh. Peter, um, Matthew doesn't tell us who, but he says one of the disciples whips out his sword. We'd probably call it a dagger. It was a short, and just starts swinging the sword around. And he cuts off the high priest, the servant of the high priest's ear. John tells us this is Peter, but let's be honest, we could probably have guessed who this was, were we not told based on Peter's previous history. Um, John tells us the guy's name whose ear gets lopped off is Malchus. He's a, the, the servant of the high priest is like the chief of staff. This is a high-ranking official. Why would Peter do such a thing? Why does Peter do this? I think Peter thinks... He's standing up for what's right. He thinks he's being brave. He thinks he's being tough. And he thinks he's keeping a promise. Earlier in this evening, Peter said this to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you, Lord. Didn't Peter say that? I'll submit to you this morning. Peter starts denying Jesus right here. He thinks he's being tough. He thinks he's standing up for what is right. But in a way, Peter is denying Jesus already. See, Peter has not grown spiritually since chapter 16. He's still stuck where he was in chapter 16. In chapter 16... Jesus asked the disciples this question, who do you say that I am? You remember that? Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, what did, he answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he gets a, an amazing attaboy 
from Jesus. But then we read this, from that moment on, from that time on, Jesus began to change what he taught his disciples. As soon as he heard the disciples say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, Jesus started teaching them what that would really mean. And he said it this way, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, that it is necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things at the hands of his enemies and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what it means for me to be the Christ and the Son of God. Remember how Peter responded? Very next verse, Peter took Jesus aside And he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. Jesus said, I must suffer and die. Peter says, no, you must not. God would never let his chosen one suffer. To which Jesus responded, you know, Peter, I think you're right. God would never let the good guys suffer. He would never let bad stuff happen to good people. Is that what Jesus said? No, Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. This is why I say Peter has not grown since chapter 16. Look at how similar chapter 16 is to today's passage. You're a stumbling block to me. Why? Because you are not setting your mind on God's interests but on man's interest. In the language of today's passage, I would say this. Peter's problem is he doesn't have his mind set on the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's got his mind stuck on his what? On his flesh. Suffering never sounds like a good idea. And so to Peter, Peter's flesh says, there's no way suffering is out It's been a long time since we studied this. You know why uh, Peter got called Satan by Jesus? Because Peter was part of Jesus' temptation. Don't go to the cross. Don't suffer. God wouldn't let bad stuff happen to you. Don't go there. Right there in the garden, when Jesus is set to go to the cross, what does Peter do? You're not going there. Don't worry, Jesus, I'll save you. Jesus has to be thinking, Peter, I'm going to the cross to save you. You are still a stumbling block to me. You still have your mind set on your own best interests, what feels best. Back in chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anybody wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, get out of his flesh, take up his cross, live by his willing spirit. That's how you follow me. Whoever wants to save his flesh is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's, it's discipleship 101. It's the same lesson. Moving on, Jesus says, Peter, put that thing away. All who take hold of the sword will die by the sword. You know what I think Jesus means right there? And you can find lots of interpretations of this. I think there's an obvious meaning and and sort of a higher meaning to this. The most obvious meaning is this. Peter, I've got work for you to do. 
But if you keep swinging, swinging that sword around, they're going to kill you just as surely as they're going to kill me. So put that thing away. My death is enough for right now. But on another level, Jesus means whoever fights with the world's weapons is going to die the rest of the way this world dies. Then this part is funny to me. Maybe it shouldn't be. He says, Peter, don't you think I could call on my father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels? That's more than 72,000 angels. Here's what Jesus is saying. Pete, if I didn't want to be arrested, do you really think I would need a fisherman with a pocket knife to defend me? I mean, how ridiculous is that? But church, how often do we think we are contending for the faith, but we're using the world's weapons, the enemy's tools? It's about time somebody stood up for what's right around here, and I'm going to use my anger and my will to get something done about this. And Jesus still says, I don't need a fisherman with a pocket knife. The anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. We, we don't live the Christian life in our flesh. We cannot accomplish anything for God in our flesh because our flesh is too weak. It's self-protective. It's self Focused. Christianity cannot take the world by force. It can't. There's never been one single holy war that conquered an area of the globe for Jesus because Christianity doesn't work that way. Christianity spreads by faith and faith spreads by love by people pouring their lives out and allowing bad things to happen, counterproductive things to happen to their flesh, to their best interests, so that the glory of Jesus Christ might be shown to other people. That's where Peter is stuck. A suffering Jesus is not one he wants to follow either. There's one more group. After he's done with Peter, Peter turns to the crowd, excuse me, Jesus turns to the crowd and he asks them a question. I've said this lots of times. When you're reading your Bible, pay attention when God asks questions. What's the real question Jesus asks the crowds? He says, have you guys come out with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Day after day, I sat teaching in the temple courts, yet you did not arrest me then. What's the real question he's asking them? You know how I would word that? Why now? Isn't that what he's asking? You've had plenty of opportunities. I sat in the, in the open in the temple court. I've been, I've been out healing. I've been in a very public ministry why would you arrest me now? Now, there's an ultimate answer to that and an individual answer to that. 
The ultimate answer comes in verse 56. This has happened so that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. God ordained that the Christ would be betrayed by someone close to him. And then it would go down like this. And like we talked a week or two ago, that God will strike the shepherd and and the sheep would scatter. And there's the end. All the disciples left him and fled. But every member of that crowd needed to answer this question. Why are you here now arresting me when before... In the daytime, in the public, you didn't move to try to arrest me. The answer to that question is pretty simple. It would not have been popular to arrest Jesus while he was healing people. Right? Think about this. There's a long line of people being healed, right? People have been walking all night to get to this famous healer, and some clown runs in and puts Jesus in a headlock and says, Come on, get him now! Right? People would... People would beat that guy to death. Here's what we learn about our flesh from the crowds right here. It is way easier to deny Christ. It's way easier to abandon Christ when the rest of the crowd is abandoning Christ. It is way easier to succumb to the desires of my flesh when I'm just identified with a crowd of people. I will want to stay in that stream. That's our passage. What do we learn? This faith of ours, we cannot live the Christian life in our flesh. In the Bible, the, the, in the New Testament, Paul always associates the flesh with the law. You want to see a picture of the law? I could go back to the dog with the milk bone on his snout. That's trying to live the Christian life by my flesh, by my willpower, by my self-discipline. I am not going to mess up this time. But I still live my life based on doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, and I'm looking at all these things that sure do seem neat to my flesh. I'm just going to try really hard to be good. That is a losing proposition. It's a losing proposition. Here's how we know. This faith of ours didn't begin by the flesh. Our faith begins, number one says, by recognizing the weakness of our flesh. Before anybody can be saved, they have to know they are lost. Before I could become a Christian, I had to understand the weakness of my flesh, that I am a sinner, that my flesh is broken, that I cannot fix that. I need saved from that. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus Christ died under the penalty my flesh earned in all of its sin. Now, once I have my ticket to eternal life through faith in Christ, I can't go right back to living the life with the milk bone on my snout and think that I can be any more victorious now that I'm a Christian. We have to continually embrace the weakness of our flesh and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Here's how that is. Here's how that's different. When I recognize the weakness of my flesh, I recognize 
if I just live my life doing what will be best for me and trying to be good, that's a guaranteed recipe for failure. So I have to do a whole new way of life. The gospel is a way of life just as much as it is a way to eternal life. When I understand I cannot live in my, in my flesh or I will, I'll just be between failures, then I have, to, I have to live every day like this. Lord, good morning. What do you have for me today? I want to walk with you this day. God, I have plans. I have things to do. But my number one to-do list to-do list. It's just to walk through this day with you. Will you lead me by your Holy Spirit? The reason, the reason we read the Bible and come to church is not so that we know all the rules so we can try really hard not to break them. That's milk bone living. I read this stuff so I can know God better so that when I'm listening to that still small voice in my heart, I can, I can tell whether that comes from him and agrees with this or if that comes from my flesh or my enemy and it disagrees with this. And so our desire, our desire more than not messing up today, my desire is just to search for the will of God for this day and submit to that no matter what comes. Paul, Paul would say it this way. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul said, my flesh went right up here. I was crucified with Christ. So now it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in this body I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's exactly what I just described. That's Paul's way of saying, I don't live based on getting what I want anymore. I gave my will to the one who saved me. It's he who lives through me now. What's that look like in my life besides waking up every day and talking to the Lord and talking to him throughout the day and just being, being mindful that I want to live based on what you want? I'm less defensive. And I'll speak absolutely personally here. When I'm in my flesh, I'm never wrong. I just haven't convinced you yet that I wasn't wrong. When I'm in my flesh, I'm, I'm self-defensive. When I'm in the Spirit, when I'm led by that, that willing Spirit that is within me, I know my righteousness is not based on whether or not I can convince you that I wasn't wrong. My righteousness is, is based on what my Lord did at the cross, so I no longer care as much what you think. But I do care if I hurt you. So I want to I listen. 
Instead of defend myself, I want to know how you felt when I am led by the Spirit. That's who I am because that's who Jesus is and he will live his life through me if I will submit to that willing spirit within me. When I am in the flesh, I tend to desire things mainly that just benefit Matt. And when I'm in the spirit, I look for ways to glorify Christ. And those are seldom the same thing. When I'm in the flesh, I have lots of audiences. I care what you think, and I care what they think, and I care what other folks think. And when I'm in the, when I'm in the spirit, I just have one, an audience of one. I, I just, how do I glorify you and please you today? Now, if I live, when I live in the Spirit, do I not mess up? Of course I do. I take this flesh with me, and it's weak. But when I'm in the flesh, I don't want to confess even to my Lord because I'm waiting for that newspaper for him to whack me. When I'm in the Spirit, I know he's, he doesn't have a newspaper rolled up for this little puppy anymore. He poured it all out on him. I don't walk around with my tail in between my legs because I've been such a bad boy anymore. That's flesh. When I'm in the Spirit, I know He loves me and He gave Himself for me. So even my sin, when I'm in the Spirit and led by the Spirit, my sin doesn't keep me from Him anymore. When I'm in the spirit, I'm, you know who John Knox was? John Knox was a preacher in the, the, the trumpet of Scotland in the 1500s. Bloody Mary, the queen that tried to undo the long story. Bloody Mary, she couldn't have been a nice gal. Her name was Bloody Mary, right? She drugged John Knox in. He was on, she, he was on trial in front of Bloody Mary. And she was asking, how do you, you know, answer for all these terrible things you're done, you, you are doing? And, and he said, I wrote this one down. He said, uh, in God's presence, I speak. In God's presence, I speak. You know what he was meaning? I know that I'm in your presence, queen, but you're not my real audience. You can kill me if you want. She didn't, but she could have. But in God's presence, I'm going to stand before him one day. He loves me. He gave himself up for me. And I, I live for him who died for me. That's why at his funeral, John Knox's funeral, one of the people speaking said, Here's, here lies a man who feared no flesh. Even when the Christian tides moved in a certain way, he just, he didn't go with the flow. That's so important. Man, if you think that Christianity or conservatism can't go in certain directions that God doesn't like, we're just not paying attention. May our desire be to, to daily, habitually, lifestyleize, search for and submit to his will. He will lead us. He'll speak to us. 
that still small voice in our hearts, our, our, our spirit is willing. Our flesh is weak. We have to make sure we're sort of drawn out of the right fuel tank as we live, live our lives. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, Thank you for freedom from sin, freedom from death, for forgiveness. Thank you for setting us free from the flesh. God, uh, thank you for the reminder that we have a very powerful and willing spirit within us that wants to glorify you. And also for the reminder of how weak is our flesh. God, help us to help one another to keep our wills submitted to our willing spirit that we might live to glorify you. We love you, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.